So I've still got Sean spinning on my side. Um, As there, do I. There he is. There all he right. is. Man, man, look at all that. Okay. I love those Virtue Stream helmets. I saw those online. You get like a whole team of them. I got I got yeah. jealous, so I brought my helmet over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were uh, they were the reward for folks sitting through our two day kickoff meeting. Okay. Back in uh, February, I guess. That's awesome. Yeah, you got you got you got both of, you got both of them. Uh, the black one is the one that all the VPs got, and the white one were co-founders. Awesome. That is. So our uh, our CEO is a very egalitarian guy on some issues, but uh, he has no compunctions about drawing the line on certain things. And so. Okay. Note to self: I need to get my dictionary out because he just said two words I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, gonna have, to, you're gonna have to dumb it down here. For yeah. Us, so we need we need less than three syllable words and uh, <laughs> things like that. We don't talk to smart people a lot, or when we do, we don't. Let me go write a script then, because I might might have to put a few larger ones in there. Uh oh, that's awesome. Yeah, like things are popping up as you're talking about things. A synonym for this would be, uh, you know, whatever. I can even make up fake words that big. So. <laughs> Anyways, um, hey, thanks, Sean. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on, and uh, we appreciate it. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and kick it off now in roughly three, two, one, and welcome to the Hot Owl Podcast. My name is Brian Carpenter, and I'm Brent Piatti. And uh, today is is what is today? Today is June twelfth. Is that yeah. sound right? Okay. And with us today we have Sean Jennings, and um, I didn't pronounce it wrong or anything, did I? No, you got it right. Okay, that's fantastic. I do that a lot. And Sean uh, is with us from VirtuStream. I say that one right too? You sure did. It was only three syllables and I got them all. Um, so we are here to talk today about VirtuStream and we'll get into that. And you know, it's, it's important and all, but what's really important is our guest and our guest is Sean. Um, and so we would, you know, Sean, we want to get to know a little bit about you. Um, but you know, uh, you know, so uh, we talk at a lot to people about, you know, just different subjects. And today... We're going to hammer through what VirtuStream does. Um, you know, what's the secret sauce, as it were. But um, you're part of that secret sauce. Um, the way I found out about you was through a friend, and he was like, "This guy's the architect." Like, I'm surprised. You know, they basically they basically said, "This guy's the smartest guy you're ever going to meet," and you've already done, you've already proven that by saying words I can't I can't uh, I can't understand. So, but we'd love to get hear more about you. So, um, you know, tell me a little bit about who Sean is. Sure. So let me start by thanking you both for inviting me onto the podcast today. Uh, it's a really exciting time in the life of VirtuStream. And uh, you know, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about the value proposition that we bring to the marketplace. So a little bit about me. Um, when people ask me to give the elevator pitch on, on who I am in my career, I start off by saying that I am what I consider to be a young mainframe guy. And that means that when I entered the industry in the early mid-80s, mainframes still ruled the roost. And we were just starting to see real penetration from more of what we called mid-range systems back then. Things like I actually started off writing assembly and um, Fortran and C code on PDP-11s and VAXs and AS400s and the like, as well as some mainframes. I very quickly came to understand the, the actual long-term impact of Moore's Law, and so I shifted very quickly what people at the time derisively thought as being downscale into open systems based on various uh, emerging risk processors and then ultimately to x86 as it became more important. And uh, right in the 2001 timeframe, because of my experience in mainframes and virtualization on those platforms, when I saw what was coming with, with uh, VMware, I decided to change career course and focus purely on delivering services around x86 virtualization. Uh, and specifically for customers in the banking and finance industries who I was working with closely then, where we would be able to bring them a, a new kind of high availability and disaster recovery capability, uh, much more robust than what we had been dealing with for many years. And so I started a company called Bry Technologies in 2001 with fellow VCDX Matthew Thur. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But Matt and I had a very similar vision about what virtualization was going to do. And we built one of the premier thought-leading consultancies globally around virtualization starting in 2001 to the point where we were VMware's first uh, VAC, first VMware authorized consulting firm, and actually essentially had an exclusive on that, not by design, but just by the fact that uh, we had such a close relationship for 18 to 24 months. And that was what caused us, Bry Technologies, to be acquired by VirtuStream back in 2009, the summer of 2009. And that 
is kind of the thumbnail sketch of who I am and how I got here. So speaking of, of who you are, so you talked about uh, VCDX, and uh, you know we looked you up. You're number 17, so you are early adopter and and into the ranks of the the VCDX and it's VMware's. For those of you who don't know, it's their highest certification, and it's peer vetted. And there's only 190 of you guys in the world, and that's that's pretty cool. So tell me a little bit about that process and and how you know painstaking it may have been, and uh, you know what you had to go through. Sure. Well. Um, the VCDX certification, I, I think, is unique in the industry for a lot of reasons, and I'll get to that in a moment. But um, there is a kind of a funny story associated with that. So uh, We love funny who, stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> so those who don't know, VCDX involves a couple of fairly challenging exams, VCAP exams, that demonstrate real expertise in the design of virtual infrastructures as well as troubleshooting. Once you pass those, you put together a fairly... Uh, comprehensive design that you submit to a review board that decides whether or not it meets the criteria to do an oral defense. That oral defense is a pretty harrowing process and it turns out that there's a fairly significant fail rate in that environment. And I think part of the reason for that is in order to be truly successful as a, as a VCDX, and VCDX is someone who's going to be able to make a case not just to the IT director and the SMEs and the IT department, but also to the business leaders, the CFO, the CTO, the, the CIO, etc. Well, when, when we decided that we were going to pursue our VCDXs, because Matt Thur and I both uh, are 17 and 18, second and third outside of VMware, uh, it was actually the late spring of 2009, and we had already been approached by VirtuStream as a potential acquisition target. And so we had decided we would do the acquisition first, and then we would do our VCDX designs and defense. Well, the timing was such that we, we didn't have a choice. It was essentially one or the other. So we gave up on the idea of doing the VCDX because we felt it was more important to, to do the merger with, with VirtuStream. But then Labor Day weekend came around, and I was a little bored, took our kids to the beach, and I'm not a beach guy, and I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time in the sand. So I started my VCDX design that day. And I came in Monday, sorry, Tuesday morning, and I said to Matt, my co-founder at Bry and one of our co-founders here at VirtuStream, I decided I'm going to do my VCDX design. And he cursed me out because he said, now I have to do it too. So we raced each other to see who could finish their design first. I happened to email mine first. We went out. So this is the funny part. Our closing for Bry got delayed a little bit, and we signed the actual deal to sell ourselves to VirtuStream on the Friday I'm sorry, on the Thursday prior to um, VMworld. And we had helped design labs for VMworld, and so we were going to work round the clock helping with the labs. But first, we had to get to Palo Alto to do our defense. So at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, we signed the definitive deal to sell Bride to VirtuStream. We got on a plane 45 minutes later. We actually did some of our design work on that plane ride, and we defended the following morning. Wow. So in less than 12 hours, we sold our company and did our VCDX defenses. And then from there, we drove up to VMworld where the labs were broken. And I think it's the only time at VMworld the labs didn't open on time. And so we pulled all-nighters helping the team up there get that done. So it was the most intense 24 hours of our lives. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty awesome, right? Else. That is, <laughs> it's completely awesome. I mean, my, like my proud moment is the fact that I put on pants today and, <laughs> and you sold your company, got acquired by VirtuStream and got a VCDX and fixed the VMware labs, which back at that time was a pretty difficult thing to do, uh, all in roughly 24, 36 hours. It's uh, definitely a big accomplishment. Well, thank you. So the, well, uh, ask me about my pants, please. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Well, you were talking about the past, and you were talking about some of those cool things you were doing, some of the stuff like the, uh, um, you know, the 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 AS four hundred, all the other stuff you're doing with mainframe, all those kind of things. Um, one of the things we like to do is kind of talk about the past. Uh, Brent is a big fan of of technology and what 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 was today's what was today's today in deck today in yeah. tech yeah yeah so I follow a website it's called uh, thisdayintechhistory.com. And today, on June 12, 1967, the Soviet probe Venera 4 is successfully launched. And then five months later, it's, uh, they're going to enter Venus's atmosphere, where it will become the first space probe to successfully return atmospheric data from another planet. So that's cool. And uh, it also is interesting because your background... Um, and this couldn't be a better segue, is in aerospace engineering from MIT. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, as a matter of fact, it is. Yeah, I so, mean, interesting, right? So 
look, you're, you've been in uh, basically architecture, right? Data center architecture and these things for a majority of your life. Um, you went to school at MIT for aerospace engineering. So what do you really want to be when you grow up? Uh, I think I want to be a swimming coach. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's time to put the put the sheep out to pasture and relax, right? <laughs> well, I just say that because it happens to be the one sport that both both my daughters are interested in, and my older daughter is now 14, and my younger one's 10, and so I'm starting to see the end of the road here for when they're not going to want to spend any time with dad. And I've spent a lot of time traveling over the last four or five years with VirtuStream, and so I know you know there's always those trade offs. But if I had my druthers right now, I'd be coaching my daughter's swim team at least until she moves on to something else in her life. So are they doing are they doing swim or are they doing a little bit of diving or are they doing both? Yeah, our our league is only swimming. Okay. We, uh, we're very conservative here in Montgomery County, Maryland. We don't like kids diving into pools. Gotcha. We actually um, Tommy Trogdon was on here a couple of weeks ago, and his daughters both do diving. So it's um it's a I mean it's a, you know what I like about that as a as a ginger um, I like indoor sports I'm a big fan especially in Texas so I'm I you know swimming outdoors you know hopefully you got indoor pools there Maryland's got a lot better it's a little bit more temperate than Texas is like right now it's the face of the sun outside but one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life was visiting my best friend in Texas about 14, 15 years ago woke up early in the morning and he had already gone off to work and I went and dove in the pool in the backyard. Worst thing I ever did. That was 104 degree water, and I did not know it. Yeah, that's why it was 14 and 15 years ago. Yeah, that's right. You're no longer friends after that. Oh no, we're still friends, but <laughs> I don't ever go in pools in Texas. Well, let's uh, you know, we let's get to work here, and let's talk about this Virtue Stream. I mean, you got it on your shirt. You've got some helmets behind you that I think are just awesome. Um, you are a co-founder of Virtue Stream. So when you guys were acquired. Um, what is it like? How big was VirtuStream when you required? And you guys were it was the pair of you guys as your company. Sure. So uh, just expand a tiny little bit on uh, on that uh, history. So at that point in time, Bry was about fifteen people, and we were punching way above our weight in the virtualization space. Uh, people just assumed we were much bigger than we were because of our profile. And the way that we ended up uh, coming to be acquired by uh, VirtuStream is that um, Rod and Kevin. The, the gentleman who went out and raised money in the depths of the financial crisis in 2008 to start VirtuStream, they had uh, this amazing track record of building companies. So they were able to raise money when, when very few could. And they recognized that the cloud and particularly managed services for really important mission-critical uh, uh, applications in a cloud environment was going to be a big industry, even though that's not what people were focused on at the time. And so they went out in the market looking for the kinds of skill sets that we had, um, and they did that by going to companies like EMC, like uh, VMware, and asking for their best partners by region. And we happened to fall into a couple of those lists. And when they first called us to ask if we had any interest, uh, a gentleman answered the phone and basically totally blew them off. Uh, he, at the time, was our chief operating officer, and we didn't find out about that until a few months later after we had parted ways with that chief operating officer. Um, but anyway, long story short, um, the second contact was made, and we were intrigued by their ability to raise money in that environment, but also by the vision. And after our first meeting with these guys, we actually went back to our office and looked for bugs because it turned out that we shared uh, a Regis office facility. Um, but their vision was so in line with ours, and we were very, very technically oriented. They had this immense uh, success as businessmen, and it was just an ideal fit. I mean, I couldn't have scripted anything better. That's awesome. So uh, as part of being a co-founder of Bride, does that make you a co-founder of VirtuStream, or were you early enough in their group? What's the, uh, I guess, what's the sp specific choice there as far as being a co-founder? Sure. So, um, you know, because... Uh, Rod and Kevin had been through this before, and because they understood th uh, the value of uh, having people materially invested in the business, as part of our transaction to become part of VirtuStream, we became very significant shareholders in the business. Um, and so, uh, and that was partly by choice. Um, and over the course of the first couple of months, as we started to work together, uh, they saw that we were putting everything into VirtuStream and more that we had put into Bry. And, and I think that you know, there was a certain threshold there that we met in terms of you know, how we put our heart and souls into the business and fully committed that caused them to say that you know, these guys really deserve to be included in this co-founder group. And we were very, very early in the process. The company was only a few months old when we were acquired. That's awesome. So you were 15 people. VirtuStream was how many at that time? That's a great question. In the U.S., VirtuStream at that time was six. And in the UK, I think they were about 35 or 40. 
So okay. they had acquired a very similar firm in the UK called Virtualize IT, who had actually been VMware's partner of the year in 2007. That's in, awesome. In so and I guess you guys are now, I mean, they're, they're three months old or so. They've acquired a couple of people. They've got some funding. They're taking you to the table and you guys walk up to the drawing board and it's empty and you guys have this concept of whatever it is you're going to do. You know, walk us through the process of, hey, we're going in here to create X. What is this thing you're going to create and how did you kind of get from point A to point B with that? Sure. So uh, I think one of the things that really interested Rod and Kevin about the business that Matt and I had built was that we were already so in line with what they wanted to do. So we were building what at the time we called virtual infrastructures. Today we would call them private clouds for uh, companies, um, you know, Fortune 500 type companies for really sensitive government agencies, some civilian that we uh, can talk about some civilian that we can't talk about and some in the the DOD and law enforcement space and essentially the things that we had been designing and building were exactly what they wanted to build which was a platform that from day one could run the most heavyweight applications so Rod and Kevin have a huge background in building businesses around enterprise applications like uh, SAP, Oracle Financials, Siebel and the like and they had started a company before they acquired us uh, that was for four or five years running one of the top companies in the um, Fast 50 and they were acquired, uh, they went through a serial acquisition spree in 2005-2006 first by Canbay, acquired a joint which was the Rod and Kevin's company Kevin became uh, the CTO of that company. Rod became the COO and the name successor to the CEO. And within 14 or 15 months, they were acquired by Capgemini in a billion-dollar-plus transaction. So what they were looking for was the skill sets to, to walk up to that whiteboard and from a blank slate build a cloud services platform that would be able to run any application regardless of size and scale, that would be able to provide application-level uh, response time guarantees, not just availability, because anybody can do availability, but the actual response time to the end user in the business, and also meet any certification requirement for security that might emerge. So at the time, we had things in mind like PCI, like HIPAA, uh, FedRAMP was just starting to be talked about. So our key criteria when we went up to that whiteboard, and that team included uh, virtualization SMEs, Matt and myself, who were newly minted VCDXs, uh, a bunch of database SMEs from various platforms, uh, SAP SMEs, security SMEs, and networking SMEs. And actually, some of the work that we did in building that reference platform and that reference design um, is still unmatched by some of our competitors today. Very cool. Well, Sean, you know, so I have a I have a secret DOD clearance, so you can go ahead and. Uh, and fork over any of those names that uh, you, you may have worked on. I'm, I'm also TS. I'm no uh, no poly, so keep it keep it light. <laughs> I don't I don't want to hear too much. Okay, no, I'll but tell you uh, what. I'll, I'll send that to your black email address a little later today. <laughs> there you go. So you guys just picked up FedRAMP certification. I saw that uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago. That's uh, I think it's a, a pretty big achievement uh, in the industry. So talk a bit more about what FedRAMP is and why it's important uh, to VirtuStream and its customers. Sure. So uh, FedRAMP is an effort by, um, I believe the GSA ultimately is backing it, to go out into the marketplace and certify various cloud platforms as being secure and meeting the criteria necessary that government agencies can safely run their applications in those environments. One of the interesting things about FedRAMP in my mind is that it only applies to an agency that is bringing workloads out into uh, what they consider to be a public cloud provider. And um, ironically, if that same agency were to decide to have a company like VirtuStream build an on-premise cloud, they would not be subject to FedRAMP. And so that's kind of a, in my mind, that's a real gap. And what I would assert is that companies like VirtuStream, who we kind of sailed through the FedRAMP process because really all we had to do is dot some I's and cross some T's above and beyond what we do for our commercial cloud. And we're able to deliver an incredibly secure service, much more so than any individual agency, in my opinion, would be able to do building on their own because we've put so much R&D into our processes, our software stack, and our and underlying architecture. So in my opinion, most agencies are going to be much more secure in a FedRAMP certified cloud than they would be with an on-prem cloud. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, and plus the company that did it for you guys, Coalfire, that's a cool name anyway, so... Indeed it is. 
So you've got this, um, you've got your IaaS up and running. You've kind of successfully built this business. You're starting to go. Um, you now have a software product that is basically you can take what your secret sauce is and bring it into someone's house and do a similar experience. Is that right? That's that's a great point. So actually, if I could, let me just kind of describe the overall business for VirtuStream because although we are a relatively small company compared to industry titans, we still have a number of lines of business and, and, and quite a few facets to our organization that, that sometimes uh, are lost in, in the industry and press messaging. So we are able to support the full life cycle of cloud adoption for any of our customers. When we started building our cloud, in addition to having these requirements around uh, security and performance, one of the things we understood is that many of our customers had already gone through a pretty significant sea change, if you will, um, in transformation just going from dedicated hardware into virtual infrastructures. And they had done that by tipping their toe in the water, typically, you know, try the low-hanging fruit, the, the less important applications, the uh, test dev stuff. And our hypothesis was if you really wanted to successfully get the economic benefits of the cloud, you needed to bring your biggest, baddest systems into the cloud as quickly as possible. In order to be able to do that, we did two things that are very important. We developed a concept and a construct that is both an architectural and a measurement construct for cloud computing called the micro-VM. The micro VM, think of it as um, a kilowatt hour for the cloud. And we do measure this consumption for virtual machines in a five minute increments and we roll it up and we bill our customers by micro VM hours. Well, why is that important? Let's say that my software vendor tells me that I need, uh, for my three-tier application, that I need web servers with 16 gigs of memory and four virtual CPUs. I need um, business logic servers that are going to run eight CPUs and maybe 32 gigs of memory. And then I need a database server on the back end with 128 gigs of memory and a and, uh, whole bunch of tier one, tier two storage, and a really fast storage behind it. Well, in most cloud models, if you go and you configure those machines with those resources, you're going to pay for those resources as long as the machines run. In our model, what we do is we allow you to configure your machine exactly as you want, but when you configure that web server with 16 gigs of memory and it consumes 10, you're only going to be charged for the 10. The 32 gigs for the application server, if it's consuming 18, you get charged for 18. And that database server at 128 is probably way overkill, and first of all, we would recommend you size it with much less memory because our storage system is so robust you don't need to cache as much. But if you insist on doing 120 gigs of memory, we're happy to comply. Uh, but then if you only use 50 gigs of memory, you're only going to pay for that. The other really important concept is, is that we're not just using the micro VM on individual virtual machines. We are delivering to our customers resource pools that they can use however they want. And what's beneficial to that is many organizations have systems that have very distinct daily patterns. Some systems are extremely busy in the morning and less so in the afternoon. Others are busy in the afternoon and not so busy in the morning, and yet others are really busy at night. So by giving them a, an elastic pool of resources, those systems that are not busy at any given point in time can allow other systems to use those resources. The net effect is we're able to deliver these, these really robust SLAs that I talked about, as well as a, typically a 30% lower price point for our customers because of the nature of that resource sharing. That's uh, I mean, cool. that's all pretty, right now. I really want to go out and go sign up for Virtue Stream and send some stuff <laughs> so, out there. And I, I hate to sound like a Ginsu knife commercial, but there's more. Um, so, so the key element at first was to devise, to devise that micro VM so that we had that that capability to deliver this resource pool and these SLAs. The net side effect of that, which was really important for us, because many of our customers were running on proprietary Unix and RISC things like Solaris Spark, AIX Power was we developed a tool called VirtuStream's Cloud Advisor, which will go out and measure the true consumption of your applications. So that database server that you're running at 128 gigs today, if we use our advisor tool to measure the actual consumption, I can come back and tell you that, uh, excuse me, Mr. Customer, you've allocated 128 gigs of memory to this particular server on this really expensive AIX machine, but did you know that you're only using 56 gigs of that memory? And, oh, by the way, you've got 64 processors at 2 gigahertz each. Did you know you're only using 1.2% of that CPU power at peak and 0.8% most of the time? And when CTOs and CFOs see those kinds of numbers, it's a real wake-up call. And if you can then back 
a story that says we can migrate you with no disruption to the business to the cloud based on all of our prior history and experience with these applications and we'll deliver a service to you that has higher availability your end user performance in terms of response time is going to be a second or better which is oftentimes 30 or 40 percent faster than what they have today in their on-premise environments even with the round trip latency of a wide area connection and we can take your DR down from days to a couple of hours it's just a really compelling story and oh yeah I forgot most of our customers realize 30, 40, 50% savings as well. That's awesome. So, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you used the term public cloud earlier. Would you consider yourselves uh, a public cloud today? You know, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a label that we've often resisted for a couple of reasons. One is, in my mind, a public cloud is truly that. I, as Joe... John Q. Public can hit a website, swipe a credit card, and get resources. And it was only this past year that we actually launched our true public cloud where that is possible. But that is a separate physical environment to our enterprise cloud. Our enterprise cloud has always been truly a community cloud. And the community are enterprises that have these really high requirements for performance and security and who are totally willing to accept that you will not be able to access our management infrastructure from the internet. You're going to have to come from a known good network and you're going to have to go through two-factor authentication to get to the portal to manage your virtual machines. So in that regard, I've never considered us a public cloud. But on the other hand, any organization who wants to go through our vetting process can, in fact, run workloads on an extreme powered cloud in a Virtustream IaaS data center. So many of the analyst firms have typically categorized us as a public cloud for that reason, even though we didn't have the open access swipe your credit card. And, sure. and, and frankly, you need to be there. I mean, sometimes you just need to be there by name because when somebody goes and pulls up a report and says, I need a public cloud, who are the thought leaders? You kind of sometimes just need your name to show up, right? Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, you don't want to potentially cut off um, your nose to spite your face by, by having these really hard um, definitions. What we've always wanted to do is to be able to have the conversation to the customer and explain that value proposition because for, for many customers, we're, we live in a multi-cloud world. I mean, we're totally understanding of the fact that many of our customers will find use cases for other clouds besides Virtustream, and that's one of the reasons that our software stack is more and more capable of managing multiple cloud environments that are not just extreme powered, although those are, those are product futures that I'm not making any announcements about, I'm not making any commitments about, but we do recognize that there is a, is a in a typical enterprise, it will be a multi-cloud strategy. Extreme powered clouds will be a significant part of that for those really important mission critical applications that have been designed in prior architectures. And I, I do want to cover something really important about our value proposition above and beyond the infrastructure. But that that infrastructure play where we're providing, you know, this really um, profoundly reliable, high-performance environment and giving you those economic benefits, it's, it's important to understand that we designed this for applications like an Oracle, a Siebel, um, an SAP, where you as the customer have no control over the software architecture. If you're starting from Greenfield and you can build an application that is infrastructure aware and, and that can dynamically scale within the application and has application-level failover, there's a number of platforms that might be well suited to that, including Extreme. There are some things that we do brilliantly with that that other cloud providers don't do. But now that we've gotten to the point in time where we have very successfully proven that you can run these heavyweight applications and take those economic benefits of the cloud to applications that have no understanding of infrastructure or cloud, we've also been moving up the stack to help drive costs out of the maintenance effort that it takes to run these really large complex applications where you've got many different instances because you've got people doing unit testing, people doing development, people doing QA, and people doing user acceptance testing. And so much of the IT spend for these applications is just about keeping the lights on and, and maintaining them that the focus of our IP development has shifted in the last 18 to 24 months to optimizing the automation around management of those application stacks, not just the infrastructure itself. So you're saying above and beyond your infrastructure portion, you actually have uh, managed type experience for people who may not, maybe not even know the application they're trying to deploy. Like if I don't know SAP, but I, I know I need an SAP, you can kind of help me bridge that gap. 
Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, but it's a little bit more nuanced and important than that. So um, let, let, let's imagine this. So if you are today, there are still many customers who are running their SAP applications, as an example, in a managed service provider. And many of those uh, systems are still running on physical environments. And there's, there's a specialty within uh, the SAP world, at least, called uh, BASIS, which has to do with the underlying technical fundamentals of running that application stack, things like ABOP and the like. We have a managed services organization that will do all of that work for you that is completely knowledgeable of the nuances of the difference between managing that in a cloud environment versus managing that in a single tenant environment. And, and those are important nuances. But what's really interesting is, is that a lot of our innovation in application management has come from our managed services team. So our managed services team is often called upon by our customer to take non-productive systems, let's say the QA systems, the dev systems, test, etc., and shut them down at the close of business on Friday afternoon so that you're not running and consuming resources over the weekend because no one's going to use them. So why pay for those resources? And in a true consumption model like we have, where you're just paying for the consumption of that resource pool, that's a really powerful way to save some money. Well, the corollary is, if it takes eight hours of labor to shut down 200 systems, and the 200 systems running for the weekend is less expensive than the eight hours of labor, then you didn't gain anything, <laughs> right? So we've developed uh, a core feature of Extreme called Application Director, or more commonly, we call it App Director around here, which will take these really complex systems. And if you're going to shut down a BW system uh, on an SAP development environment, there's actually four, six, sometimes eight or ten virtual machines where you have to log in and you have to gracefully shut down a service and then shut down the operating system. Well, that might take someone 30 or 40 minutes. We've developed a framework which is generic across all these legacy application sets where we can take a blueprint of an application which is defined using standard uh, inputs like a, a file in the YAML format. And we can take that information, run it through AppDirector, and manage these virtual machines for our customer so that we can automate all of those steps that I described before about starting and stopping these complex environments or cloning them and creating a new one. So there are some tasks that used to take mandates of these basis resources, who, by the way, are harder and harder to find in the marketplace, and we can cut those things down to minutes, maybe hours in some cases, of labor so that they can go on and do the next thing, which truly does require their experience and their intellect, not just going through rote and doing some of these activities of, you know, answer this dialog box, click this button, you know, do these low-priority things, but yet have a real big impact on how much it costs you to run those, those applications. Cool. So I've, so I've got <clears throat> two questions, and this first one... Um, Maybe a loaded question, but uh, being from EMC, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, is your is your message to your customer, hey, we've got infrastructure, we've got SLAs in place, you're covered? Or do you talk about the underlying infrastructure, such as the storage, such as your compute environment, to kind of give people, say, a warm and fuzzy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're going to start talking to these enterprise environments or these enterprise customers, you are going to be put through the ringer from their SMEs, and rightly so. So I very frequently end up talking to the networking experts, the, their compute experts, their storage experts. And we are very open and transparent about our architecture. And more often than not, when I'm sitting down with you know, a Fortune 50 type firm, when we come out of these workshops, you know, I get responses along the lines of, I feel like I'm in a mainframe shop again, or this is exactly how I would build it if we were starting to build a new data center. So that warm and fuzzy is really important, and the transparency is really important as well. And not just transparency about how have we built and how do we operate our environment, but continuous transparency about things like change management. Um, upgrades to the infrastructure itself, our security posture. So we're delivering an environment where we've understood from day one that a customer might have requirements around something like PCI or uh, HIPAA. And here's the rub with that. When I, as a service provider, go through the audit for HIPAA and I get my certification on January 5th, 2015, if on January 6, 2015, one of my guys inadvertently makes a change, let's say to this configuration of a virtual switch that's not visible to anybody, I could be out of compliance with that certification until that next cycle of audit. 
and we don't want to be that guy, right? So we've actually developed a product that, that allows you to do continuous monitoring, not just of the infrastructure itself, of the cloud infrastructure, which we're responsible for. So we're continuously monitoring the entire physical environment, all of the configurations, all the controls that are part of these various certifications. And we do that using a product suite called ViewTrust, which is one of our own products. In addition to being able to certify our environment for our customers using that tool, we offer compliance as a service to our customers where we can uh, provide a link from our management infrastructure running the ViewTrust product suite into their virtual lands and their infrastructure services running in our data centers and monitor all of their virtual machine configurations so that we can certify not only that the infrastructure that you're running on is compliant, but also all of the virtual machines and applications. And there are some customers that take it a step further and say, okay, how about you do that for my on-premise infrastructure as well? So we have a number of customers that are using us to provide a comprehensive view to their compliance and security, including risk trust scoring, which is something very unique to our product set, so that they can prioritize what risks they need to address at any point in time. Because it doesn't make sense to have your security team focus on uh, resolving a quote-unquote threat that involves maybe three desktops um, and it's extremely low risk when there might be some uh, new vulnerability to Microsoft SQL that affects eight or ten production databases um, and could put you out of business if you were hit by it. So you want your people working on the things that matter. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a big differentiator between between what you guys provide and and a public cloud, right? I mean, this is a not only a vetting process for the customer to you, but for you to the customer, right? To to ensure that you're going to provide everything that they need and require for compliance, for resiliency, for everything, right? Yes. Um, so it's a it's a two way communication. It is, and and the other thing that I think is a a very important nuance that gets lost in in most discussions is that. Now, everybody talks about how they want to be a partner with their customer, right? Um, it's really hard to be a partner with your customer when your only interaction with them is through a website and, and the, the portal and the automation engine. We actually have teams of people within our company that work directly as extensions of our customer service desk. So one of the really key features, if you're a, if you're a Fortune 50, Fortune 100 company and you have SLAs to your end users, you need to have a process in place where when your service desk has an issue logged and it gets escalated to your tier two or tier three people, if they need to work with the cloud service provider, there has to be a well-defined process and set of procedures in place so that that flows very smoothly with as much automation as possible. So we do a lot of work with our customers when we're onboarding them to ensure that it's a very seamless transition. So when their mission-critical applications are running in a VirtuStream-powered IaaS node, they have full confidence that all their processes and procedures are going to work flawlessly. And I mean, and that's all fantastic. And by the way, Brent earlier mentioned all these things that you got to do for your customers uh, collaboratively. Um, it really, it's pretty, it resonates to me a lot, the performance portion of it, right? So mm -hmm. you can operationalize it, you can manage it, you can, you know, on-prem, off-prem, all these different things. And on top of that, you can kind of guarantee your SLA um, and actually get performance indicators out of it and things like that. So Absolutely. we're going to drag it down a little bit out of the smarts. We, again, we got really excited when we found out you knew some aerospace stuff. And, and, <laughs> and Brent and I collectively have, um, we're big fans of movies. So um, you've seen Top Gun? I have. Okay. So we're going to ask you a very serious question. This is something I that I think, that. what's that? I, I saw Top Gun again recently on a flight. I don't know why they had it on there, but I watched it and it made me really uncomfortable. Why is that? Was, oh, no. it, it almost felt like it was soft porn. Oh yeah. There, I mean, there are definitely some parts of that. It, it, you know, there's parts where you have to kind of close your eyes, especially when those guys are playing volleyball. Um, but mm -hmm. we have, we have a very, it's a technical question. It's probably the most technical question of the day. Um, so again, you're in a, uh, an F 16. Okay. And you are in fact in a, uh, a 4g inverted negative dive with an F 16. Is this a real thing? Is this possible? I mean, can you really do that? So two things. One, those were F-14 Tomcats. Okay, thank you. Had, thank you. The F-16 had not actually become airworthy yet and hadn't entered the fleet, and that's an Air Force plane only and only a day fighter. Uh, the F-14 Tomcat, can it do a 4G inverted? You bet, you bet your ass it can. Yeah. But can you do that and actually avoid another plane that's just a few inches away or a few feet away? Hell no. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> is, I mean, one to two meters, and would you, like in reality, so this has got to be practical as well, would you really use that? 
to communicate with the enemy, as it were? <laughs> no, I mean, not at yeah. all. I mean, I'm just I mean, wondering. I'm just wondering. You got to have a death wish to even try something like that. Okay, so it was a great special effect, right? right. I'm just. I mean, so instead of say inverting the, and rolling the other, out, with the other them, thing to bear in mind is the twin tails on that plane are so tall that you would have been 25 or 30 feet away from that plane at best, mm -hmm. and just the the turbulence of either of the jets would have caused enough variation in the motion that they probably would have collided. Yeah, well, we, we've <laughs> this now is what we expect. Yeah, this from is and think about it. So, so think about it. Okay, one of the things that the U.S. Air Force perfected somewhere in the fifties or sixties, which is still to this day a very, very difficult maneuver, is aerial refueling. Right, and so when you're doing an aerial refueling maneuver, one of the most difficult things a fighter or even a um, a transport pilot can do. And it's very critical that you're going through really smooth air, that you do very, very fine adjustments between the, the two aircraft. And even then, that actual mating of the boom to the aircraft is done by a specialist in the back of the refueler who is flying that boom just like an airplane. That thing has winglets on it. It has very fine control. It can you know, adjust to within an inch or two. I've actually done that operation when I was Air Force ROTC. It was one of the most exciting things I ever did was refuel F-15s about 50 miles north of Hawaii. But it is a freaking nerve-wracking exercise, and that thing, if it hits an aircraft, could do significant damage. But you imagine two multi-ton aircrafts just a few feet from each other? That's just insanity. And then add, a, and then add taking a Polaroid to that, and it's just... The risk is out the window. Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's good to know. So, so don't try yeah. that at home. Yeah. So, and that, and, and clearly we've also learned that refueling a plane is much more difficult than trying to top off a Slurpee where you have the dome top and you try to hit it right at the point where it doesn't shoot out. I so, don't know. They're both pretty challenging. Yeah. So that's good to know. I mean. Depends uh, on, you know, are you trying to refill that Slurpee after, you know, four or five hours of drinking and dancing and stuff? Or yeah. when are you doing that? No, I, I mean, it's usually how you start the day, right? You can't, oh, you can't okay. finish the day with a Slurpee. You have to start it that way. I don't know. I haven't had a Slurpee in like 30 years. <laughs> I promise you, everybody who heard this is going to go right now to the closest QT or racetrack or 7-Eleven and get one. And I'm, I'm proud of you for that. Brilliant. So, we're going to buy some 7-Eleven stock then. Well, we're going to <laughs> – and now I'm going to drag it back out of the mud. I just got excited about talking about clouds. And we had to talk – you know, we got an aerospace nerd here who's uh, – you know, and I wanted to – I'm going to rewind all the way back to the first couple of minutes. It's key. It's so cool that you made a couple of major bets. You made a bet moving from mainframe out to, um, you know, essentially open systems, right? And you said yep. open systems could be way better. You were right. You made a bet to go from basic open systems into virtualized, you know, open systems and even, you know, other things and made a fantastic bet on that. And you were right. Um, so we need to know from you what your next bet is. We, I mean, it's besides VirtuStream. What is that next bet? Is it hiding? Is it hiding somewhere in your room there? Is it on the whiteboard behind you? Well, I don't know yet. To be the, to be completely honest, I'm not sure I would share it if I did know. There are things always floating around in the back of the mind, right? But, but yeah, we've made some really bold moves through the years, and and you know, I think that, um, you know, our our next move really is um, already laid out to a certain degree. So I would encourage people to go listen to the podcast that Rodney Rogers have done recently since, and he's our chairman. Um, because uh, I think he lays out pretty pretty well, you know, what the next couple of months, the next couple of years are going to look like as as we close the transaction and move forward. Um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting time. I, I I don't think that the cloud is the end of the story, but I think that this is the continuation of the virtualization wave, and I think we've got a long way to go with this. Um, you know, the Internet of Things, big data. There's uh, some of the advances in medical science, all of these things in some way, shape, or form tie back to applications that are running in the cloud. So the cloud is going to have profound impact for many years to come. And I don't know exactly what that next big wave is going to be. But the one thing I would say to everybody is I've been in IT now for almost 30 years. It's been a fantastic ride because really I've had about eight or nine different careers in that period of time. And the key thing is, is to continue to learn, continue to be open to new information, and continue to be creative. Um, you know, we've tried a lot of things. I've tried a lot of things in my career that didn't work out quite that well. Um, but, you know, you do those incrementally. You take a few risks here and there. You fail fast. You figure it out, and you move on, right? So, you know, I think this is one of the most exciting times ever to be, you know, a, a 
person alive in the world today. I mean, the more people live in today than have lived in all of history before now, but it's a fantastic time to be in this industry. You know, we're changing the world in ways that we, we can't even begin to imagine. I'm really excited to see what this industry is like, you know, when my kids are adults. But um, I don't know what that next thing is, but I'll let you know once I figure it out. <laughs> watch well, me on, watch yeah, me on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll see what I end up doing. I'm going to become much more vocal here in the future. You can share with us, though. We have, we have roughly four listeners, and that's basically my parents and Brent's parents. So uh, nobody would hear your secret. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, having been in the industry now for 30-plus you know, years, um, EMC has been in that space as well. What has been your kind of um, perception of them over the years? Has it changed? And are you aware of kind of all things that is the EMC Federation today? So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when when we sold Bright Technologies to Virtustream, which is now six years ago this summer, we were um, an EMC partner and had been for a number of years. And we actually learned quite a few things from each other. So when, when we first became a partner, the DC metro area, all of the SEs and reps around here were really excited to work with Bry because we, we had this really, really heavy profile in the virtualization space. And that was long before the acquisition of VMware. And uh, so we taught the, the folks around here a ton of stuff about you know, how to work with customers and deliver virtualization services. But we learned a lot from EMC. I mean, EMC had some really great tools, whether it was things like... Um, the FSA so that you could go out and figure out how do you really size unified storage for a customer. They had really good uh, design concepts around their entire storage platform. And in our relatively brief relationship with EMC, we were three or four years a partner with them before we were acquired with Virtustream. Um, you know, we did some really amazing projects together. I mean, we won one of the most important deals as a team uh, to replace a physical infrastructure for an agency of the U.S. government that I can't talk about, but when you go to your ATM today, somehow they're going to be involved in that transaction. <laughs> um, and we designed the first cloud that that agency ever deployed. That we being, we designed it and EMC helped us build it. And as, as a partner, little old Brian EMC, we beat every major player in the industry who was expected to win that deal. And they all proposed primarily physical upgrades. We beat HP, we beat IBM, we beat Fujitsu, we beat Hitachi, you name it, we beat all these guys. And that really cemented that relationship. And so I think EMC was a little disappointed when we were acquired by Virtustream because the very nature of being a cloud service provider is that we are hardware agnostic. We're always going to use best of breed hardware. So we've continued to work with EMC throughout time. And I personally have always been dinged by senior management at this company because every time I see a problem that we need to solve with technology, I'm like, well, you know, what do we, why don't we look at Data Domain or Avamar? Or maybe we could look at this RSA solution, blah, 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 because I still keep very in tune with what the Federation companies have been doing because they're industry leaders, right? I mean, let's face it. Um, and, you know, I think that we have been an industry leader, and we were very wise in our focus on what was totally unsexy and totally uncool, which was these mission-critical applications and not the whole new Web 2.0 scale-out architecture. But I think we've been proven correct in, in uh, that vision and that plan and that approach because many of those companies that focused on, on those Web 2.0 scale-out architectures have struggled and in some cases completely failed to address the enterprise market. Mm -hmm. And so... Our, our chairman, Rodney Rogers, and we, we have a little phrase around here that we like to use when, when uh, we talk about some of the decisions that we make, especially the controversial ones, and that is, in Rod, we trust. And Rod has done <laughs> a brilliant job. And our, I think what's really important to understand is that Virtustream as a whole and our management team has done a brilliant job of taking you know, these wildly enthusiastic technical people like me and running a business and serving our end customers and keeping our eye on the ball that, yeah, we, you know, we like to do R&D, but we don't do science projects. We do technology that really benefits our customer. And I got to tell you, it's really exciting to see something that you work on actually get delivered into the market and have a real impact. And I think that uh, you know, that's been, for me, one of the most rewarding parts about being with this company and one of the reasons that I'm going to stay here. I'm, I'm really excited about what we're going to do in this new world that we're moving into. And, uh, you know, we have good institutional knowledge, I think, about uh, 
the Federation its capabilities, but be totally frank with you, because we're agnostic and because we worked with many vendors over the last few years, we've diffused our knowledge quite a bit. So we'll have a little bit of time here to come back up to speed and fully understand the portfolio. But look, part of our mission in life is to make EMC and the Federation better. And just like VMware isn't always the best friend in the world to EMC because of some of the technology that they drive, we won't necessarily be very popular all the time in Hopkinton either. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just part of our DNA, right? We're going to push to make everything better about what we do and how we deliver services to our customers. Sure. I think you guys will be popular because every single one of you on LinkedIn is wearing a suit jacket. So <laughs> you're going to fit right in with those Boston boys. No yeah. doubt about uh, it. I'll you tell you. And you know I, I got to tell you, I, I spent three or four years in Boston when I was in school, and I don't think I ever wore a tie except for when I went to ROTC drills. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the uh, the steel sharpening steel situation that goes on in the Federation. You know, we, I've always learned to call that like coopetition, right? There's times where you yeah. go, you, you're better together, and there's sometimes where you kind of just completely are apart, and one of them's going to win. The cool thing is, as long as one of you win, it's a good day. Um, at least in our opinion, right? So I, I, hey, look, uh, I'm a big believer in Darwin's survival of the fittest. It's just kind of cool that, you know, you can be in the Federation competing against other parts of the Federation. And so at least the Federation has some success, but, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We got a, a process to go through here with uh, the regulatory issues and all that. You know, we're looking forward, we're doing some planning, but at, at no point in time are we actually going to operate as if we're part of the Federation until that's all said and done. Yeah, we're we're mainly asking. So look, your opinion you know, here. I'm probably yeah. going to be competing against you this afternoon. Yeah. So good luck. Yeah, definitely good luck. We know who won that one. It's you, it's it's you, <laughs> the aerospace um, engineer. Yes. So I, you know, I'm curious though if you do know some of the more modern uh, products in the Federation. Is there is there one that kind of piques your interest as something that might be exciting to you for the future, as it were? Is there something that you kind of been looking at? And go, man, that'd be cool to play with. Or you know, I think these kind of customers are going to love this one. Is there anything that's kind of more, I guess, on the edge for us that you like? Well, I'd really like to get a VMAX into my basement. So VMAX 3? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying we, to figure out how exactly I fit it down the stairs. Uh, they're very heavy, first of all, especially the density these days. And you, we do know that our, our illustrious leader, Chad, has one in, is it his basement or his mom's basement? We forget. It's the mom's <laughs> basement. But either way, he, uh, I think he has one of everything in his basement, though. So, I would hope yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm really looking forward to working with Chad, actually. We've uh, crossed paths many times during the years, but never actually worked together. <laughs> So yeah. when so, we go ahead, Brent. Yeah, I was going to say real quick. You know, you you brought up um, Extreme, which is uh, your cloud management software, and I, I don't know if we kind of defined what it is necessarily, <clears throat> but um, if if you could provide a definition of that, but also I'm curious to see. You know, you're a VCDX. What is the actual, uh, uh, I guess, amount of VMware virtualization in your cloud stack today? Sure, that's a great question. So let me ask, answer the first question, I'm sorry, the second question first. So um, from day one when we started developing Extreme, we, we started developing it for the simple reason that we, we had several goals in mind that no one else was addressing and that we knew that we'd have to do ourselves. So being able to deliver um, these performance SLAs, being able to uh, provide resource pools and the micro VM capabilities, we knew we had to write our own what, what our uh, senior executives like to call a macro hypervisor, so a manager of managers, if you will. But what's always been key to us is that in order to meet those SLAs, we have to select the right underlying kit and software uh, to meet those SLAs. And so the majority of our customers, well over 90%, Probably still over 90% of our, I'm sorry, 95% of our virtual machines running under extreme management are running on VMware today. And we see that trend continuing. We want to give our customers choice. And so we have the ability to run uh, and we have KVM platforms sprinkled throughout our cloud nodes. We do have some customers who use that platform. It's relatively limited. There's a comfort level with the VMware technology that I think isn't going away anytime soon. And so we will continue to provide that choice. And that, that's really important. One of the key features that we knew that we needed to provide with Extreme, and Extreme really is truly a cloud management platform. And on day one, um, when we delivered Extreme to our customers, Extreme was really just an abstraction layer for customers to deploy and manage their virtual machines. So it was essentially a portal. Some similarities between what VCD does, um, but but su some superficial, some some uh, very well aligned similarities. But we also knew that we needed to provide the ability for cloud 
service providers to have a really robust management layer. So over time, as we've added more and more features into Extreme, those have really been focused on helping make the CSP and the IT administrators and the cloud administrators at enterprises really productive. So it's really important to understand that Extreme's target market are other providers like ourselves. And historically, we have sold our software stack for CSPs outside of North America. We didn't really want to compete with our own technology in North America, except in very specific verticals. So we've, we've uh, partnered with some CSPs that focus on small business market, which we don't. We've partnered with some CSPs that really focus on the government space, which is not a core focus for us, although we do have our own FedRAMP compliant cloud. But there are certain segments of the federal marketplace that we don't really have a good fit for. And so we've enabled some service providers with our extreme uh, cloud management platform. But if you look globally, we have partnerships with UOL in Brazil, which is the largest content provider and cloud service provider in Brazil. Mobile, which is one of the largest telecom providers in the Middle East. Uh, CTC in Japan, which is one of the largest and most uh, important managed service providers there for mission-critical applications. And numerous others across the globe, including IBM Software, where they use us to layer on top of their hardware provisioning capabilities and then lay extreme down as the cloud management platform that could deliver those heavyweight applications that require SLAs. And even companies like uh, SAP and Cisco are using our software for certain really important niche heavyweight products. Yeah, that was cool. You know, I was watching on uh, <clears throat> on YouTube, you know, just a whiteboard session. And it was interesting that you guys actually offer to other service providers, you know, the, the extreme software and, and that management layer. Um, talk to me a bit more about how you enable other service providers. Sure. So the software is an important component of that story. So when you think about it, um, it's also important to recognize that when we entered this, this market, when we entered the IaaS market in 2010, first quarter 2010, we knew who we were and who we wanted to sell to. We knew we were enterprise-oriented, and that's where we wanted to sell to. And we also knew we were delivering a unique value prop with the micro-VM, the, the service-level guarantees, etc., When we go and we enable other cloud service providers, many of them have... Um, preconceived notions about what it takes to run an enterprise cloud. So in 95% of cases, we're not just selling them the extreme software. We're also selling them a suite of services that includes helping them build their business model, helping them to train an operations staff. And in some cases, we run the operations for the first year with their people watching over our shoulder and being mentored. Uh, and also sales enablement. Very few people necessarily understand how to sell an enterprise-grade cloud service into this market space, which is something we've been doing for more than five years very successfully. So it is the whole gamut standing up the cloud service business, typically for something like a telco or a managed services company, where they just need assistance with that entire process to become productive. Because, you know, let's face it, we are in um, a very high growth time period in the cloud adoption curve. And to a certain degree, what you're seeing is a land rush. So it's really important to win these customers now because once you miss a customer, you probably don't have another shot for years, if ever. So it's very important time to market. And just buying a CMP platform, whether it's from VirtuStream or anybody else, is not enough to build a cloud business. Yeah, and I think that's that's a cool that's a cool differentiator about about you guys. Not only offering the the services and the you know call it managed service and public cloud, but being able to enable uh, your partners that are service providers to offer a better experience. So we're kind of helping our ecosystem out, um, and everyone benefits from that. And that way, we can kind of fend off um, you know the, these kind of uh, the humongous AWSs and Googles of the world, right? Sure, absolutely. Different value prop, you know, di different uh, problem set that we've tried to solve. Uh, there's certainly overlap, but when you think about it, um, you know, everyone likes to have a pretty full toolbox. You don't want to go try and, you know, drive in a nail with a screwdriver, and you don't want to try to turn a screw with a hammer. So that's one of the reasons why we recognize that there's going to be a multi-cloud strategy. And, and we've really been working what we think is the harder problem, which is those enterprise applications where you need to have a guarantee that that user is going to get a response in a second. Because even if you go into a public service or a public cloud that theoretically gives you 
performance on paper that you would need if you're getting 20 and 30 and 40 second response times to your users you're essentially under a denial of service attack right so you know we give our our customers the ability in the building blocks to deliver these really high performant high visibility services on top of our infrastructure as a service platform and the other thing we help them do is get over their analysis paralysis. I mean, just to tie that back to our, our advisor capability, many enterprises you know, have a sense that they, they want to get to the cloud and they have cloud initiatives, but there's always reticence to take those, those really important order-to-cash applications that are the lifeblood of the, the actual business and commit them to someone else's platform. But there's often com- uh, really significant economic pressures that are forcing companies to consider that. And by getting that agnostic analysis, by getting that hard data, whether you're going to come directly to a virtual stream or another cloud service provider, or for that matter, write an RFP where everybody gets the same information, that's a really important part of the process too. That, that enablement to give the management the confidence that this is doable, that you're not going to put your career at risk by choosing a cloud as long as you go with an enterprise cloud that can deliver on these features is, is a really compelling value proposition. So we uh, we kind of that's awesome by the way. Uh, so we've kind of gotten towards the end of the hour here. Um, I have you know one major question left, and that was really around you know we kind of love to hear, especially from people, an, an awesome story, like a cool story about the back you know the, the the deep inner workings of the business or this customer who who did this thing with your product that just when he started it was like this doesn't make sense or this problem that somebody told you they couldn't solve. They said you can't solve this problem. So do you have? you have anything like that that you can share with us or is it one of those those black ops things again you know i do i have several it's it's a matter of deciding which one i mean um well i'll, I'll use one where there's some uh some public information to uh to back up the story although not the gory details so a couple of years ago um we had an investment in the business by sap north america so not the venture capital arm of sap but the actual north american business and if you look at the timing of that, that wasn't too long after SAP launched um, HANA at Sapphire. And for those who don't know, HANA is a fairly revolutionary database technology where everything is done in memory. And it's actually a columnar database, which is different than traditional uh, SQL oriented databases in that data is organized and optimized in columns rather than rows. Uh, and then they put an abstraction layer on top of it to enable SQL-like transactions. So a couple of things about that. One, SAP being a very conservative company has always had some pretty beefy requirements for their HANA servers. And they really have been reluctant to virtualize HANA as a platform, although they, they did relent and, and announced support a year or two ago for virtualized HANA. And we've actually been one of the leaders helping them get there. But here's the story. So SAP wanted to launch... Um, at Sapphire 2013, they wanted to launch HANA for real because it had been kind of in a soft launch for a while and they wanted to make a big splash. And uh, the current CEO of uh, Infosys, Vishal, who was at the time the CTO of of, uh, SAP, came to us in January or February and said, hey, in May, we'd really like to launch HANA. And we'd like to have at least 10 logos of important companies up there on stage uh, running HANA. And we think that you, VirtuStream, can help us get there. We'd like you to help us go out and find, and we have many candidates, uh, 10 companies and take their, their BW systems, or in some cases their ECC suite on HANA um, suite systems, and move them to HANA. And we'd like you to do that you know, in the next 8 to 10 weeks. <laughs> well, we, we together, we found 24 different instances, and we migrated in 8 to 10 weeks, 24 different businesses with BW and, and ECC onto the HANA platform and got them up and running. Now, in a normal environment, you would typically do a quarter, maybe four months for some of these, and you would do a few of them at a time, but we actually drove an entire, what we called our... our um, HANA Automation Factory, or Cloud Automation Factory, we drove 24 different landscapes from various forms of SQL onto HANA so that at Sapphire 2013, when they showed those logos up on stage, nearly all of them were actually running in VirtuStream's cloud. And at the time, we were calling it the HANA Enterprise Cloud. 
in the first iteration. That, that terminology is still used, but it refers to a slightly different uh, use case today. But when we first looked at that problem, honest to God, when we got the messaging from senior management that this was the proposal, we were all laughing. I mean, for 15 or 20 minutes, we're all walking around the office joking with each other that, God, you know, where'd they come up with this idea? That's just insane. And it was about two or three hours later, we found out that they were actually serious. But nonetheless, our managed services team, our, our CCS group, which is also called Cloud Cover, um, they managed to take all of those instances. And we're talking major uh, multinational consumer packaged goods companies with many terabytes of data that we had to take from on-premise systems, get them to one of our cloud nodes, convert them, optimize them, load them, troubleshoot them, you know, do the optimizations. And that would have been a pretty big challenge for one or two. But our team did it for 24 well, in they, less than a quarter. Yeah, I mean, they crushed it. So that's awesome. That's yeah, a great, that's a great, great story. Yeah. So with that, uh, Sean, you know, definitely wanted to thank you for your time today to talk about yourself, Virtue Stream, you know, your family, your friends. Um, but uh, you know, it was, it was great learning about you, and and I look forward to a continued uh, dialogue and relationship. And uh, you know, we'd love to have you back on to to talk about things. You know, say another 60 to 90 days down the road and uh, we'll get your perspective on how things have changed for you and um, you know educate our listeners out there sounds good John I really appreciate the opportunity thank you Sean All right. so with that um, everyone listening out there thank you for joining us on the hot aisle today my name is Brent Piotti and I'm Brian Carpenter and we'll see you guys soon thanks for listening see ya bye